Let's take it to the edge. Let's get the flitting. Let's talk about the night unexpected. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and um, there's really no decision this time. I, yet again, am your host, because Kyle Daly, well, let's be honest, he just screwed up last time. I mean, you can't be a good wingman if you bail like that. You know, I hear technical yeah. difficulties, but that just sounds yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. excuses. So hey guys, <laughs> I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and yet again, I am your host for this not the first, but the second episode of Knife Perspective. And I'm joined here at an undisclosed location by my co-host, Kyle Daly. Kyle, hey how are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. So you still uh still in the blade show crunch. Do you, do you have your performance issues handled? I believe so. We got we got a wired headphone now, so hopefully we don't drop off. Oh, so that's what you're calling it these days. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the that's what the the young kids are calling it now. Oh, shit, we got to go right back to age again. <laughs> Fair's fair. I left myself open for that one. Yeah. So, so when you uh, bailed yesterday, I mean, um, dropped out last time. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking about the new Knife Magazine website. Nice. Uh, which they, I sent you the sneak peek link. Um, they should have gone live by now. I hope they've gone live by now because, well, we're talking about it. Yeah. Did you get a chance uh, to check it out? Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. the The whole collection is it looks like it's uh, coming out. I think you I think you said there were there was articles all the way back to like the seventies. Yeah, I've got to check and see how far back their archive goes. But the thing that I've loved about it is it's a fairly technical magazine and not technical as in necessarily the nuts and bolts of making knives, but there's a lot of information packed in. You know, it's there's no fluff. It's not it's not pretty pictures. It's pretty in depth articles. And the subscription to the magazine gets you access to their digitized archives now. Nice. Which is apart from being able to enjoy the articles, it is a phenomenal research tool. Yeah. Being able to type in and type in some keywords and search. That's uh, pretty powerful. Well, and the, the editor, apart from being in the industry at a, a really deep level, is also certainly world-renowned, if not one of the leading experts on Bowie knives. So, nice. Yeah, he's. Um, I'm working on getting him to come on and uh, as a guest because he is he's a fascinating guy with some really phenomenal technical knowledge. Excellent. We're going to have to make that happen. Yeah, no pressure. Thanks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, we've, we both have some some guys that we're uh, working on in the background. Hopefully, we can uh, make those things happen. So how's your Blade Show stash looking? Oh, it's uh, coming along. I've got – I'm working currently working on uh, 50 knives that are uh, going to be available. So hopefully, That's- if everything goes all right, I've got five still that were on the website. So I'll be bringing those with me. So hopefully we'll have 55 knives there. 
And this is your second year? Yep, this is my second year. That is a, that's a strong showing for second year. Yeah. I've been working on the knives since like February, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's one of the details we don't speak about publicly, man. Come on. Yeah. This is basic level stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh I was shooting shooting for the same amount. I brought 44 last year and I was shooting for about the same and then uh don't know what happened. Uh next thing I knew, I had cut out uh 10 pairing knives and uh four more boning knives. So basic rookie mistake, you've raised the bar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now next year you're just going to be expected to do even better. Yeah. Well, bring it on. Ah. I hear you, little youth, little little vigor, ready to take yeah. on the world. Yeah, we'll we'll make we'll make that going. So, this uh, this week is, uh, I believe, sponsored by Dogwood Custom Knives. Is there anything you want to say about uh, about the, uh, the episode? I thought we talked about this. If you're going to do commercials, you got to have a commercial voice. I st- still 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 working on it, man. All right, all right. Let, let's see what we can do here. Today's episode is brought to you by Dogwood Custom Knives. www.dogwoodcustomknives for all your culinary cutlery needs. Again, that is Dogwood Custom Knives. Man, you really knocked that one out of the park. I have to probably just make you the uh, the official announcer guy. Oh, totally. I mean, that that's how I got married. I mean, <laughs> fortunately, Beth fell for my voice before she saw my face. Yeah, you, I've said it before. You got to trick them. And the best thing is when they don't think they were tricked. Uh, something about uh, the, the greatest trick the devil ever played. So uh, uh, this uh, podcast is going to be me talking to you about uh, kind of some of your life experiences. So let's uh, get this started. What what was uh, the first knife you can remember? Here in the biz, we call that an interview. Yeah, the interview. Okay. What, was the, what was the first knife you remember in your childhood. First knife I ever got was a Barlow pocket knife. By some crazy sh- twist of fate, I still have it. Brown handled, metal bolster, two blades, razor sharp, cut the snot out of myself with it. Like I had had it for 15 minutes. And I clearly remember my dad gave it to me. And, you know, I was, I guess, five, six years old. He gave me the very very wise fatherly advice, you know, always cut away from yourself. Yeah. And I grabbed it and took off. And there are these, these really whip, uh, kind of willowy branches on this bush. We used to use them as swords and, and kind of hit each other. It, it was a different time. And I clearly remember I went to cut it and I did like the, the peel in the apple where you put your thumb on one side and the blade on the other mm-hmm. and you go to cut it. And I, yeah, I laid my finger open. And, cut right through it, huh? Oh, and I remember I was, I had a little fort back in the woods that I'd built. I was back there hiding and I'd wrap my t-shirt around it. And I remember the blood had soaked through the t-shirt and was dripping on my shoes. And I didn't want to go home and tell my dad that I had cut myself because the one thing he told me was cut away from me. And I was, I was certain he was going to take my knife away. And I remember watching that blood kind of pool up on my shoe thinking, all right, I got to go get some help with this. And as I walked into my house, my dad was the first person I saw, and I was I was distraught. I mean, first knife. I'd finally been trusted with a dangerous tool, a weapon even. And I had immediately done the one thing I was told not to do, and I knew I was about to lose it. I mean, I'm in tears, blood all over the place, and I go to hand my dad the knife. 
he just looks at me with this confused look. He's like, why are you giving me this? I said, well, I cut myself. And he looked at me like I was an idiot and said, are you going to do it again? And I said, no, sir. He goes, well, go see your mother and get cleaned up then. Nice. So your your mom was the uh, the first aid yeah, of she, the day? Yeah, she was actually a, an RN. So um, dad That's was helpful. Yeah, especially with the way my brother and I lived. Is this a PG-13 show or an R? Am I allowed to say balls? Uh, I, I think so. I think you, you just did. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm probably not going to edit it out. So All right. Well, I didn't know if you were going to do the thing. <laughs> <laughs> my brother and I live with a lot of balls and not much smarts. <laughs> nice. Yeah. A lot of, hey, like, y'all watch this? Yeah. An embarrassing amount, actually. What was, uh, how'd you get started doing the knife making career stuff? Um, citronella torches. Citronella torches is what got me into knife making. All right. You're going to have to explain some more on that. So I used to live in a fair, fairly rural part of Georgia. And if you live in Georgia and you're going to be outside during the summer, you got to have citronella torches. Yep. And I used to get really, um, can I say pissed off? I think you just did. All right. Tell you what, <laughs> we're going to go for like a, a PG 13. I used to get really right. irritated because like the torch part of the citronella torch would get all corroded and look terrible and the yeah. stand would yeah. be fine, but you couldn't buy just a new torch part. And there was a blacksmith down the road from the house and I was building furniture at the time. I had a little shop in the, in the basement. And I figured out that you can put a plumbing fitting into a beer bottle and make a torch out of it. So I wanted torch stands to, to fit the beer bottle. So I went down to this blacksmith shop and I set a beer bottle down on his workbench and said, I want torch stands to fit this. And he kind of looked at me funny. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to need some more details. So in the process of designing a torch stand to fit this bottle, we started hanging out and, you know, Two healthy males in a blacksmith shop. Of course, we started talking about knives and swords and axes and associates and so on and so on. I think you have to. That's like a prerequisite there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lose my man card. Once One day he's like, look, Dan, just come in on Saturday. I've got some work to do. I'm, I'm going to show you how to make a knife and then we can be done with all this. So I came in and I made that first knife and it was a full-on Choir of angels singing, epiphany, ray of golden sh- sunshine came down on the anvil. James Earl Jones whispered in my ear, this is why I made you. And I was hooked. Nice. Yeah, it, did, it, it had no intention of ever making knives. And I made that first one and the die was cast. That's pretty cool. And he was – it's uh, it's Mark Hopper. He's actually – uh, he's at the goat farm in Atlanta. I think it's the, the hammer and goat. He's a okay. phenomenal Smith. I think, I believe he is a master Smith in England, France and the States. I mean, amazing. Uh, he was on fortune and fire. Um, and shortly after we got started, he moved his shop to downtown Atlanta and I was living just outside of, uh, coming in ball ground. And that's, with traffic, that's like an hour and a half to Atlanta. So there was just no way I was going to make it down to him and back because I had young kids. They were old enough. They were both in school, so I could 
take them to school, and then I had a couple hours to work. So there was no way I could make it down to him. And I managed to get my hands on a copy of the membership list for the Georgia Knife Makers Guild, which is a phenomenal learning guild. Yeah, it's amazing how many knife makers you guys have down there down there in Georgia that get together on a regular basis. And a huge part of that is because of the guild. They work to support upcoming knife makers and are very free with knowledge and time. It's a phenomenal organization. But somebody messed up and let me get a hold of the, one of their membership list with phone numbers. So mm-hmm. I started calling people. I showed up at a meeting. I was borderline obnoxious, and I know that's hard to believe, but I was a a little pushy, and I had a friend of a friend that knew Andy Roy at uh, Fiddleback Forge, and I guess it was three or four times Andy and I had spoken, and he finally finally just said, all right, look, it's August. It's Georgia. You can come work in my shop, but I'm not going to pay you. There's no air conditioning, and you're going to sand handles and sweep floors, and it's going to suck. And I said, okay. Um, so I did that for a couple of months, uh, maybe three days a week. And then Andy kind of sat me down and said, all right, if you're not going to leave, then I'll teach you how to make knives. But it's going to take a, a time commitment. I need at least 40 hours a week, five days a week, and here's your reading list. It's probably going to be a couple hours a night. Uh, so I started in with uh, Andy at Fiddleback Forge, and the deal was he trained me to do whatever work needed to be done for him at the shop. And when that work was done, I could work around the shop, and he would continue to teach me. And we did that for for about nine months, and I worked with him and Dylan. Uh, Dylan had been an apprentice before me and had graduated as a knife maker. So Andy was my my official mentor and spent a lot of time with me. And Dylan kind of raised an eyebrow as, you know, who's this guy? And then, again, once he figured out that I wasn't going to leave and he was kind of stuck with me, um, Dylan started to, to also work with me. So I was, I was fortunate enough to work with two really phenomenal knife makers. Very cool. Yeah, we're all f- friends with them still. Looking forward to seeing them in a... In a couple of weeks at Blade Show. So, uh, what is the what is your favorite knife that you did not make? Um, God. that's a hard call. As I as I look at my wall of knives, um, as far as style, um, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at trade knives from the late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds. Um, I really like gaucho knives. It's one of the few blade cultures that's still around today that's that's prevalent. So style-wise, um, like I said, I'd have to say gaucho knives, uh, old trade knives. Um, for a specific maker, um, I, I like Falknaven. Um, you know, the production guys is a whole other conversation. Yep. Yeah, we we have that for that one. I guess we can go ahead and knock that one out now. What's your what are some of your favorite uh, production companies? Um, for production, I like uh, I like the BK sixteen. That's uh, the first knives that both my boys had. They had Moras, and then I gave them BK sixteens. It's a really useful size shape. 
Um, I was also involved. Um, Ethan Becker has got, as far as we know, it's the only fully intact Kephart knife in existence. Because the, the one that's in the Kephart Museum is a four inch and it was either a reground from use or it broke. And Ethan's mm-hmm. got the, the full size one. Nice. And I was involved in the project um, when he started working from that to make the, the BK-64, which is the the production version of a Kephart knife. Um, and then my – my, my kind of – I won't say holy grail, but the knife I – the first knife that I really saved up for was the uh, the old Laol. It's a, a French pattern. Uh, it's got the, a very distinctive swoop shape to it. It's uh, – Part of their maker's mark is a little B on the spring for the, the folding knife. Yeah. And it is, it's got a beautiful, elegant shape to it. And it was the, it was the first not Kmart knife that I ever saved up for. But one of my buddies, when uh, he got married, he actually gave a, all of us groomsmen a uh, set of those uh, steak knives. Yeah, so they make a they make a fixed knife version, and then they make a folding knife version that's got a corkscrew. Wow! And then I'm because they're I, a they're a French company, right? They are. Uh, my understanding is uh, there's a very small region, kind of like true Champagne, only comes from the Champagne Valley in France. It's a very small region. I think a single town and uh, Napoleon licensed this knife shape to that one little area. And since then, that's the only place that can make true Laol knives. And my current, I'm currently on the hunt for a Hemingway knife. I, yeah. I, I'm a, a huge fan of, of Hemingway's literature and it is a ring pool automatic knife about the size of a buck one ten That's got a corkscrew on it. Okay. And the story is that he came into a knife shop to have one sharpened. And the owner of the shop said, well, we're kind of backed up. It's going to be a few hours. Are you okay with that? And Hemingway said, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll go get something to eat, have a few drinks. And the knife, the owner of the shop took it to the back and deconstructed it, made a set of drawings, put it back together, sharpened it, and gave it back to him, and then started producing these knives. Hmm. Um so partially because I like Hemingway and partially because I like the idea of that. That's a very convenient size for an automatic knife. Um, I always liked a ring pool and me being me, I find the need for a corkscrew more often than you might think. Nice. I, uh, I prefer, per, prefer beer and whiskey to, uh, to the wine. So I'll let you, uh, you tackle those bottles. Yeah, birds got to fly, fish got to swim. My wife likes wine. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my wife loves wine also. Uh, so what's uh, what's one of your favorite knives that you've actually made? That is like trying to pick my favorite child, and it depends entirely on their behavior that day. Um, my most successful pattern right now is the the Echo Five, and that's a just a general purpose outdoors knife. I make one called the Huntsman that when I go hunting, that's the knife I carry. It hasn't been successful financially, but it's it's a knife I love. You got to have a few of those. Yeah, I've got that one and one called the Houndstooth, which is a – in truth, it's a very traditional fishtail puku. 
but I realized that when you turned it point down and butt up, the profile looked like a the, like a German Shepherd's head. So we called it the Hound's Tooth, and it's another pattern that I love that hasn't been financially successful, but people that have used it have been passionate about it, and it's it's a really fun knife. Uh, it's very similar to the Huntsman in usage. It's a it's a lightweight general purpose outdoor knife, and then. I'm passionate about being in the kitchen. So I love my kitchen knives. Yeah. You and I both love to, to eat and to do that. You gotta, you gotta cook too. Well, when I, uh, when I got into knife making, I originally kitchen knives are what I wanted to make. I, I've always enjoyed being in the kitchen and there was nobody making custom kitchen knives at the time that I had apprenticed with. So when I got on with Andy, I mean, I, I grew up, running around the, the North Georgia woods. So I was familiar with outdoor knives and that's, that's where my business got started. And I'll always make outdoor knives if for no other reason, just out of appreciation for those that got me started. But kitchen knives are always what I wanted to make. And I've been very fortunate to have a couple of buddies that are executive chefs that have been a, a great test bed for me. Nice lead-in question here so uh one of my favorite knives that uh i've seen you make was uh one of the ones you had at blade show last year with uh when you helped do some reproductions of a certain knife uh and that doesn't doesn't go up in there you know so i appreciate the lead so there's a little bit of a story behind that and yes those are going to be in the booth this year so i was very fortunate to be part of a group that worked on the original Kephart knife. And as a part of that, for the effort that I put in, the the benefit was I was allowed to make a limited series. It's 10 reproductions of the original Kephart. And I got to spend a weekend with a curved reproducer and a set of calipers and the original knife to make a full set of drawings off of. And the deal was once the production version came to market, then I could make as many of my versions as I wanted to. So last year I had that, that limited series of 10 Kephart reproductions, which they're about 90% accurate. There were a few small details because I was, I was making them off the drawings and I didn't have the original right there. But now that the, the BK, I believe it's 64, is on the market, I'm allowed to start making my reproduction. And I'm doing them out of uh, CPM 154 and S35VN. And they're going to be 1 8th and 3 32nd. So a little thinner than the original, a little lighter, uh, made from particle steel. So it's going to be the same feel, the same balance, uh, the same performance, just with uh, arguably better blade geometry. And that's because I can work with new materials. Um, so I like to think it's the knife that Horace Kephart would have made if he had modern modern materials available to him. A little thinner, a little lighter, made from super steel. Yeah, you and I have a have a similar philosophy with thin knives. We like them like them slicey, and uh, we, especially in the the bushcraft scene, we aren't as well. We don't share the same opinion as a lot of them. <laughs> well, I, w- I was I was actually studying engineering when uh, my first son was born, and he was premature and really sickly, and was going to need constant care. 
And since I was in school, my wife was covering. I mean, we were pretty much living on her income and the GI Bill was paying for school. She couldn't quit work to take care of him and somebody was going to have to take care of him. So I dropped out of, I dropped out of the engineering program. So both of us have a very similar background and first thing I do is run the numbers. Going all the way back to the Greeks, they proved the lower the angle, the more efficient it is. So a thin blade allows you to have better blade geometry. It's lighter. It's less fatiguing. You know, my time in the infantry taught me I don't want to carry one ounce more than I have to. Yeah. Yeah, the old old outage or adage, uh, was it pound, or ounces equals pounds and pounds equals pain? Yeah. So I think both of us come from that engineering background. So we were pretty quick to buck the common theory of thick is better and go, well, actually the numbers don't prove that. Yeah. You still have to, it depends on what you're doing with it still. Some of the, the thicker stuff, if you're batoning and whatnot, that's uh, a little bit different story, but uh, definitely for the kitchen and a lot of other slicey tasks, having it thinner is the, the best way, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, he's a, a guy down in the Colombian Amazon, but he makes Tanamboca knives, and he likes to say it's the Indian, not the arrow. If you're experienced enough, if your technique's good enough, back when I used to do the E2E podcast, um, we were talking about thin knives. Adam got called out for talking about thin knives. So to prove a point, I've actually batoned knotty white oak with a 1 inch 01 blade. If you go slow and use good technique and make sure your impact is spine to edge, you're fine. If your technique gets a little sloppy, if, if, if you're less experienced, then that thicker knife is going to cover for, for mistakes. Gotcha. <sighs> We're going to get so much hate mail over that, aren't we? <laughs> Probably. Bring it on. Remember, if you have any complaints, those go to Kyle at knifeperspective.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the kind of lead it in, what are some of your uh, style slash uh, techniques that you like to use most on your knives? Well, um, I started out with a smith doing you know traditional smithing. And then when I worked with Andy, he taught stock removal. I kind of found myself at a crossroads. I do stock removal now. And one of the reasons were it allowed me to work with with modern, especially particle steels. Um, I drank that Kool-Aid pretty deeply that, that can't be forged. And mm-hmm. part of it is, I guess it was my second blade show. I'd gotten to be friends with a guy and he introduced me to Chris Reeves. And you know, here I am. I've been making knives for like two years and I don't know if you know this, but Chris Reeves is a freaking mountain of a man, like Todd Hunt st- size man. Yeah. So here I am, you know, five. And <laughs> I, I'm talking to Chris Reeves and I'm new to the, I, I'm new to the whole scene. I finally just say, you know, Mr. Reeves, I apologize for this, but I can't, I can't be around my friends and say that I, I didn't do this. And I pull out a knife that one of my patterns and I hand it to him. I said, you know, what do you think about this? And he's looking at it. He said, what steel are you using? I said, oh, one. And he said, now keep in mind, I'm quoting Chris Reeves here. I'm not actually saying this on this podcast, but he looks at me and goes, um, if you could drive a Ferrari, why do you have an F model T? What? I was like, the steel, you know, it, it, it 
it's a hundred years old. You you have availability of all these modern steels with all this this great advantage, and you're choosing to use this steel. Why would you do it? And then he reams me for it seemed like an hour, so it was probably three minutes on my steel choice, and walks away. And my friend looks at me, kind of kind of hang dog. He's like, "Hey, I am so sorry." I said, "What are you talking about?" The only thing Chris Reeves could complain about my knife was the steel I choose. I can change that tomorrow. So that was kind of, that was kind of my aha moment that nice. I could try to compete with these master bladesmiths that have got a huge head start on me. Or I can start working in this new market where there are less people and there's very legitimate reasons to work in this steel that can't be forged. So at that time... I thought I was thinking, all right, new material, a, an easier market to get into. And then as I started to learn the metallurgy, I realized that, hey, there's a really legitimate reason to work with this. So I go to a hammer in maybe once or twice a year just to to let some of my Smith's buddies give me a hard time. But I'm I'm pretty solid stock removal. What are some of your most must have shop tools? I love the grinder, but all that does is let me work faster. I've got that guy that I've talked about that does tan and bokeh knives. He is literally in the jungle on the frontier of the Amazon. By the time electricity gets out to his shop to use like an old school two-wheel grinder, he has to spin the wheel and then turn it on. And he's able to use some hand tools and still do stock removal. So for me, it is things like I've got a height gauge that works as a scribe, and that has really helped with keeping my grinds precise because I can mark, use that to mark at the edge and then use a caliper to mark the height, and that allows me to get really clean, precise grinds. I do a similar, similar thing. As much as the grinder – Without the grinder, I could not make a living at this. I would just be too slow. I couldn't create enough volume. But all the grinder does is let me work fast. I think the my layout tools like that, uh, like calipers and the the height gauge that works as a caliper are actually vital tools. Yeah. And layout fluid. I use a phenomenal volume of layout fluid. Yeah. So uh, one of the tricks that I I recently did. Uh, so they got a aerosol can of that stuff and uh that i was like man this is awesome sprayed down my first couple things that was the last thing i was ever able to spray with that can <laughs> but uh so they make uh some uh fine mist sprayers that uh, i've used with leather work so uh, you you hand pump it and it makes this super fine mist for water oh yeah and i i threw some layout fluid in that and uh I haven't had a problem with that. I've used it for about about a year and a half now, and it's been good. So I might want to give one of those a try off Amazon. I'll check it out because not only do I use it when I, when I scribe the shape to grind out, but when I'm doing my hand sanding, um, I'll put it on, let it set, and then when I start hand sanding, it settles down into all the deep scratches, and I'll make those scratches pop. So before I change grit, it's a great way to make sure that I've gotten all the scratches out. You know, all the deep scratches out. Yeah, that's a great tip. Because nothing is more frustrating than being up there around 400 grit. You're starting to polish, and then you see that scratch that you should have gotten back. Yeah. You know, gotten out back at 120. Or 60. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are painful when you're, uh, hitting that stuff. But, uh, so, uh, what's one of the things that, uh, you do that kind of defines your style? So from a design perspective, my first thought is what is the purpose of this knife? And everything that helps that stays in the design, anything that hinders it gets removed and anything neutral is an aesthetic choice. But I've kind of got, I've kind of got a three points that every knife has got to meet. Mathematically, it's got to make sense. Like I've got to be able to prove why this shape, this leverage, this curvature, this angle. I've got to be able to prove in math that that's efficient. And then I look for an historical reference because as much as I like to talk about being creative, since prehistoric man first broke off that sharp chip of stone and started working with a knife, if it can be done with a knife, it's probably already been done. And if a pattern was around for a couple of hundred years, there's a legitimate reason for that pattern. So I like to go back to historical record and look for proven shapes because frequently with modern materials, I can take that proven shape and I can make it lighter. I can make it, you know, I can improve on it using modern materials. So I look for a historical reference. I look to be able to mathematically prove why it's going to work. And then it's got to make sense. Even historical references occasionally will have some sort of flourish that that just doesn't make sense to me. My aesthetic influence is really the shape of a woman. We're probably going to get letters on that one too. It may sound chauvinistic, but the, you know the the classic shape of a woman, especially that curvature at a hip. That's that, there's something beautiful in that. You'll you'll frequently find those those flowing soft curves in my handle shapes. It's a reoccurring theme in my knives. Nice. If for no other reason than, as Andy said, it's got to be sexy. No matter how good your knife is, if it's not attractive enough for someone to pick up, then they'll never know that it's good. Yeah, I saw some of the, the most recent knives you were doing. You actually had uh, some pretty cool handle material that actually had some, like, pinup girls <laughs> and stuff on it, too. So, Yeah, I have found a... Uh, I'm going to debate whether or not I'm going to tell you all about this guy because... If he gets too much more popular, I'm going to have a hard time ordering material from him. But I found a great source, and one of his handle materials he does is pinup girls and paper micarta. And each uh, each handle slab is, I think, 100 sheets of paper in the micarta. But he perfectly aligns the image, so as you shape the handle, the image stays coherent. Very cool. I think I already know who that is. <laughs> You probably do, but somewhere between not wanting to tell people and just being a jackass and making you listen all the way to the end of the podcast before I tell you who it is. Yeah. One of, one of the ones I think I saw that he was doing was a, a Legend of Zelda one that looked super cool. Yes. Uh, he does that and he does the skulls that I use as well. Yeah. I always love those American flags too. Yeah, and he does uh, blue stripe and red stripe for uh, firefighters and police as well. Yeah, cool. Edgy topic. What's your what's your favorite steel that you like to use? I see what you did there. That that, that was well done. Um, I am. I love particle steel. Uh, the the crucible steels. Uh, for 
for a lot of the same reasons that you like uh, 154. I like CPM 154, which is the same chemical composition. It just uses the, the particle steel process. So it's got a finer grain and carbide structure. You get more edge retention and a little finer, a little keener edge. Um, to your point, the steel costs about twice as much, and it more than doubles my production cost. So it's a little expensive to work with. Yeah, but I love the performance. Yeah, spend a lot on belts and all the things that never the customer doesn't never actually sees. Yeah, um, the difference between high carbon steel and and the CPM one fifty four just in belts, not the additional time, nothing else. It can cost me as much as an extra eighty dollars a knife just because it wears through belts so quickly. Yeah. But on the kitchen side, a lot of the a lot of the people I work with are chefs that you know they'll they'll use these blades ten hours a day, six days a week. So the the extra edge retention, uh, the finer edge, the keener edge, really makes a difference. And back to, I'm I'm going to use I won't say the best. I'm going to use the most practical material on the market. So I like CPM 154 and then S35VN, which is another step up on edge retention, which is also another step up on production cost. So you're not a big fan of the S30V, like S35? I like the S35, and part of that is that I've been using it long enough that I've got the heat treat really dialed in on it. I tend to use it because I like the thinner blades, especially for my boning knives and that sort of thing. The toughness of the S35VN gives me – like I can have a boning knife at 59 Rockwell, so it's really hard. It takes a keen edge, but that S35VN, even though it's at 59 Rockwell, I can get a lot of deflection. It gets a lot of flexibility, yeah. and it'll come back true. So it's a little bit of best of both worlds. I can get a hard blade, but I can also – with working with this thin material, I can get a lot of flex out of it. Gotcha. And it's got phenomenal corrosion resistance. And I think it's the vade or the nickel that does that. Yeah. Not sure. I'm sure there's – hopefully one of our metallurgists that calls in to correct me will also come in yeah. uh, and be a guest on the show. Yeah, that's a that's a teaser. We possibly have some uh, metallurgists that uh, are going to be guests on the show from time to time. So, um, Really? We would do that? Yeah. There was a, one of the metallurgists that I work with. He's super excited about the possibility coming on. So – We'll have to... Good, because I've got a bunch of questions. <laughs> yeah, I've I've picked his brain too. Yeah, so in in with the steels you mentioned, uh, dialing in your heat treat process, you're still doing that all yourself, or? I am. Uh, I've changed my model a little bit, so I've got I've got kind of three levels. I've got a house brand now, which may or may not be entirely handmade. Some of those blades are made at a production house. So those I'm not doing my own heat treat on, but the, the signature, which is entirely hand handmade and the custom, which is sky's the limit. You know, if you want wood from the never, never tree, I will find it for you. And both of those are still done entirely by hand, entirely in house. Nice. But the house brand gives, it's a little more because I'm working in larger volumes and I've got some large production lines supporting me. I can get the price point down a little bit. So it's, 
it's kind of an introductory level. And then the, the signature and the custom still lets me be creative. Yeah. Very cool. So, uh, what are some of your favorite handle materials to use on your knives? Um, yeah, I like, um, I just drew a blank. Unique Micarta. I'm trying to remember their new name. GL Hansen and Sons, I believe, or Anson. Yep. Um, they've done some cool stuff. I've, I've worked with Shade Tree for a long time. They do my, uh, my Starry Night material for me. Um, they do some cool burlap. And both of those are, some of the Micartas out there are really kind of rough to work with. They'll dull my blades. They'll, they'll work through belts. And the, those two are beautiful and they're, they're not just kind of the same old, same old. And it's a material that's good to work with. Um, I use, uh, casting Kings a lot for my hybrids and they'll do the, the wood and resin hybrids. As a matter of fact, I just got some thousand year old bog oak from them. That's been stabilized and then cast with some really vivid colors. Interesting. And then I guess this is the part where I go ahead and mention uh, mental co and seriously, if you guys go out there and start making him so busy that my orders get bumped, I'm going to be ticked, but he does the, the, the images in the paper Micarta, like the pinup girls and that sort of thing. Um, he also does the stabilized beer hops for me, the stabilized coffee beans. Uh, we do rosemary and thyme leaves. He also does a really cool stabilized cattails. Yeah. One of the one of the guys that uh, was at the Janesville knife show up in Wisconsin. Um, I just had his name and lost it. Um, but he... Uh, he had some of the stabilized cattails and that stuff just looks absolutely amazing. I was, it was one of those ones, the more I polished it, I mean, I think I went, it, it kept looking better and better the more I polished it. So I kind of broke my, my normal rule because I try to go with kind of a, a, a working finish, but it kept looking better and better. And I think I took it out to a, like a 5,000 grit finish just because the, the chatoyants and the cattails and the, the vivid pattern. It's, it's stunning. I think I went ahead and ordered two more blocks from him. Nice. I saw, I saw some handle material that he was doing with, uh, some sticks and some like lichen. Yeah. Like green moss. Uh, forest floor. That looks super cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to try to have at least one cap heart this year, uh, with that on it. That just seemed right to me. The, the forest floor mixture on a, a really dedicated bushcrafting knife. I'm going to definitely have to try to make it over to your booth on Thursday and make sure I see one of those. <laughs> All right. So, uh, where do you, uh, where do you draw some of your, your inspiration from? Um, you know, it's a combination of, like I said, I really enjoy some of the historical research. I spend a lot of time looking for old patterns because if a pattern has been around for a long time, there's usually a really good reason for that. Uh, and then some of it is, you know, some of the knives I make, actually most of the knives I make come from me saying, I wish I had a knife that was good at fill in the, you know, fill in the blank. And that's what I'll work towards. Yeah, making a knife that you, that you want. That's one of the, one of the always ones that's so rewarding. The, my little small pocket bushcrafter, it's a three inch blade tall, uh, that I carry with me every day. And, I just find that that little tall, uh, stubby blade shape to be so useful. Yeah, my my three finger EDC was because of 
I finally admitted that the vast majority of what I do with a knife is cutting string, opening packages, getting splinters out. That little two and a half inch blade is is what I use most of the time. So one of the questions is going to be a little bit harder for you than it was for me. Uh, if you weren't a knife maker, what would you be doing? Um, probably what I was doing before I started knife making, which was custom furniture. Um, I used to build custom furniture and humidors. And I loved the work for the same reason that I love knife making. It was it was an intellectual challenge in that trying to find ways to make the materials work, but it had to be a tool first. I mean, a table had to be able to support whatever you were going to do with it, and it had to be a shape that was convenient, and then it had to be beautiful. So I always loved the idea that it had to be practical first. The The problem with with furniture making is some of those projects, some of the cabinets and stuff I was doing take six months. And at the end of six months, I hated it. Like I didn't want to go in the shop anymore. I was so done with the project, which is one of the reasons I got into knife making was it was, it was a new set of challenges every week. But if I weren't knife making, I would probably still be a furniture maker or a kept man or a prostitute. Definitely a a prostitute. If I weren't a knife maker, I'd totally be a prostitute. I don't know exactly how good you'd been that. Well, the key is I would just have the one client, but she would be an amazing client. (laughs) Nice. I think I know who you're talking about. That sounds way cooler than kept man, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, dude, seriously? Did I just lose you? You're gone again. Oh. Uh, I I am going to be host of this show forever. You might as well just call me Dan, Grand Poobah, forever host of this show. Kyle, unless you speak right now, you are the forever co-host. Yeah, that's what I thought. Hey, guys. I hope you're enjoying my new show. Um, That's right. Dogwood Dan from Dogwood Custom Knives. That's Dogwood Custom Knives www.dogwoodcustomnives for all your cutlery needs is your new forever all-time podcast host because Kyle, I'm sorry, he's typing something. I still think that you are vastly superior to me in every way. Yes, Kyle, I would agree to that, but you know what? You're a young man. You've got your whole life ahead of you. You can work towards that. So guys, um, we're at 53 minutes. That might be part of the reason um, you know, Kyle's a young man. He doesn't have a lot of endurance. That might be why he fell off. So we're going to call this episode two. I hope you all have enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, if Kyle can get his stuff together, we will have an episode three coming up soon. I hope you all will enjoy us or join us rather. Um Come see us at Blade Show. Kyle's at uh, Double B something. Just go look for the giant shaved Yeti that is Todd Hunt, and Kyle will be right next to him. Or come by um, come by booth 537. That's the Dogwood booth. Come by, say hi. Look forward to meeting y'all, and we will see y'all next episode. Thanks, guys. Well, let's take it to the edge. That's what's expected In this discussion This is the night prospective Let's get to the point
gonna talk about 